G'day, this is Lyndon, the editor and producer of Connect With Confidence podcast. I'm just popping in here to let you know that you may notice the sound quality reduce partway through uh, this podcast and then become better again. Don't be concerned, there's nothing wrong with your device. We simply had a glitch during the recording and the conversation is still clear and immensely valuable. Also, I particularly enjoyed editing this episode because Amelia shares meditation with a candle and meditation has changed my life. I tell you this now so that if you like, you can pause the podcast and go find yourself a candle to light when the time comes so that you can join Amelia and Kerry. Or you can use your imagination. However, if you're driving or out running, perhaps just enjoy it without losing your focus. Certainly do not close your eyes. You can come back and do it over and over again if you like as we will also release the meditation as a bonus episode. Enjoy. Our bodies are amazing. It doesn't matter what you feel about your body or how you feel maybe your body's let you down. Your body is, everybody's body is an incredible, incredible creation. And it saddens me when people judge themselves so harshly and their bodies that have carried them through lots of experiences in this life. Hello, my friends. Welcome to Connect with Confidence podcast. And I am so thrilled to be introducing you today to Amelia Dowway, who I connected with in Singapore a few years ago at a B1G1 convention. So welcome, Amelia. Thank you. I'm so happy to be here. I'm excited. This has been a long time coming um, to have a conversation. And, <laughs> um, and a lot has happened in the years that have passed um, be- by, from the time that I met you in Singapore. So it's really exciting to be here to have a conversation with you. Yeah. So I think it's uh, just over three years ago and actually almost three years ago because we were there on our son's 18th birthday. Uh, so we... I'd love to know what your recollection is. I think it was at breakfast, as we're leaving breakfast, you stopped and made a comment. Yeah, we had in Singapore, if you recall, um, we had this human library um, Mm -hmm. where we got to connect with different people and from all walks of life and have a conversation about who they were and they were human books. And so one of the human books that I had was a girl who had, um, gone to a party and she fell off of the roof because she had, was intoxicated and so she was a paraplegic mm. but when we asked her and she's in chronic pain uh, and when we asked her um, what if she could change anything she would not change that event she felt that even though she was a paraplegic and she had chronic pain that she had more empathy mm. than she would have had if she, that event had not happened and even though she had an unpleasant experience that experience in from her perspective became a gift. She was also ended up being um, a Paralympian in pink and yeah. table table tennis and, and so forth. So it was really interesting. So we were having that conversation about how everyone has a story mm. um, and an interesting story and how sometimes we don't really take the time to really connect with people and listen to their stories and actually see who they actually are. Mm. So you and I did a Facebook Live together, which is my first Facebook Live. I was very nervous about that. And I've done it. <laughs> but you are Carrie. 
the conversationalist. Uh, so, so that was really fun as well. Yeah. That's right. I remember. So I think it must have been just the day after that human libraries. And because I was facilitating it, I just went around to the tables and heard some of people's stories. And mm-hmm. it was really incredible. I think, well, for me, that was an amazing honour and, and great experience. And I got to hear a few different stories, but not the full story. Whereas you sat at the table and you heard that entire story and were yeah. able to interact with her. And then I think you might have moved to another table and connected with another. Another, another human book. Yeah. Yeah. Actually, I've loved seeing just recently online, people have been sharing about the origins of the living libraries or the human libraries in Europe. And it's beautiful. They're all over the world. And I know there's one in Sydney. And I think what a great experience to go and connect with somebody whose title might offend you or challenge you. And it's a great learning to not judge a book by its cover. <laughs> so these yes, yeah, so to speak, yeah. Yeah. Which, which we do all the time. Mm. Yes, yes, we do. And and so to hear about her experience and that how that grew. Yeah, so we had that that brief conversation at breakfast and I just thought, oh my goodness, who is this beautiful woman who is so encouraging and and so on the same page with me in terms of connecting with people and being passionate about that. And so I was delighted to find myself next to you at dinner or maybe I made myself find, you know, find a seat next to you at dinner and said, can we do a Facebook Live? <laughs> <laughs> and I was like, what? <laughs> what is that? And then I'm like, oh, I'm sorry, my phone's flat. Can we do it on your account? So, you've, <laughs> so we went live on your page for all of your friends. To see. Um, that was gorgeous. So since, uh, since coming home, and, you know, you're just being one of my favourite people in my Facebook world, you've sent me your book, which is just incredible, Live Fearlessly, Liberating Your Life After Breast Cancer. So I have to say it is slightly unusual to be reading a book like that about something that I haven't personally experienced, but it was really useful for me in terms of just increasing my understanding of the whole journey, what people are going through, how they're recovering and I am so grateful for the people that you connect with that they have you in their life <laughs> because you're no ordinary surgeon. Do you want to just tell us a little bit of, you know, what do your days look like? My days are very <laughs> long and hectic, but I work about five to six days a week and I do, um, I have private and public work. So I work for the public hospital full-time four days a week, 10 hour days or longer. And then I have my private practice as well. And I have two private clinics in two different um, towns. And then I do surgery as well. So my surgical days are uh, anywhere from 10 to 12 hours. And then I do one, one night a week, usually Wednesday nights, I do call for emergency general surgery. And then I do one weekend, 72 hours, um, every fifth weekend. So we share call amongst the general surgeons um, at our hospital. So it's busy, but I, I love what I do. So it doesn't feel, sometimes it feels like work when I'm up all night, but um, most of the time when I'm operating, it's like a family, you know, we have the nursing staff, at least I feel that way. I don't know if they always feel that way, but um, the nurses that I work with and the anesthetists and everything, we have a really good time. So I actually look forward to seeing them and um, it's hard work for all of us, but I think that we're, I'm fortunate to do the kind of work that I do. I feel it's a privilege to be able to 
share somebody, so, uh, something as significant as a surgery with somebody and somebody to trust me to um, operate on them and the anesthetist to put them to sleep is a great responsibility, but it's also a great privilege to be able to help somebody in that way and to help their body. Mm. And our body, our minds and body are, are resilient, but sometimes you need a little extra help. And sometimes surgery is that extra help. Yeah, absolutely. And you're yeah. a specialist, specialist surgeon, I believe. Yeah, so I, I trained in the States, um, in the US, and I'm a general surgeon, but I did extra training in surgical oncology, which is cancer surgery. And then I, in that specialty training, I did breast surgery. And then later I went and did a um, oncoplastic breast fellowship. So that's where you remove the tumor, but you can reconstruct the breast as well. And so it's just, um, I have a lot of cancer in my family growing up. So I wanted to be able to, and I knew I wanted to be a surgeon when I went to medical school. So it was really trying to marry surgery and cancer care together. And so surgical oncology is what I ended up um, doing Mm. as a career. Mm. It must be so rewarding to be able to help people with something so significant. When do you first meet your patients? I remember reading something in the book about, actually, maybe it was the testimonial you just wrote from my book. You talked about, you know, connecting with a stranger and building trust. Can you tell us more about that? Yeah, so it's something that, I mean, the patients come, are referred to me by a GP. Mm -hmm. And of course, um, either they have the diagnosis or sometimes they have a suspicion of having a cancer and then I do the workup and maybe do the biopsy or I refer them for a biopsy. And sometimes I'm the one that has to deliver um, the diagnosis of cancer to them. Mm-hmm. And it can be quite scary and shocking um, mm-hmm. for a lot of people because cancer is something that happens to other people. It doesn't happen to, mm-hmm. your, you know, to yourself. And so people, we live in a world now where people are just busy and they have a lot of responsibilities and people are really stretched to very thin. Mm-hmm. And so to get a diagnosis of cancer and, you know, when people think of cancer, they think, oh, I could die from this. And cancer is potentially is, um, is deadly. But so we're, that person is now confronted with potentially their mortality mm-hmm. and that can be quite confronting. So in a short period of time in 45 minutes or an hour, I have to try to connect with that person educate them about what the treatment, what's going on in their body, educate them about what the treatment options are. And I usually don't want them to make a decision on how they want to proceed because there's always, for breast cancer anyway, there's always a multitude of options. Um, Of course, they want to get it over with as quickly as possible. Mm -hmm. But I think it's important to give them a little bit of space before they make a decision that is going to impact them, Mm -hmm. you know, for life in a sense. So I just try to help them to take a step back, take a breath, help them ease away from the edge of the cliff because, yeah. it, you know, they're just like, I just want to get my cancer removed yesterday, you know? Yeah. So uh, I try to just kind of um, connect with them because it is a trust issue, not a trust yeah. issue, but the patient has to trust me and I also have mm. to trust them. So I don't yeah. actually treat everybody that um, I come across because I think it's important for the patient physician relationship, um, it's very important to have that trust. And so yeah. if they're not sure, I would encourage anybody to go get a second or third or fourth opinion. Yeah. And I don't, I don't feel bad about that because I'm confident in what I'm recommending, 
And so I think that the patient needs to be confident in what's being recommended as well, because they're the ones that have to live with the consequences of any treatment, not their doctors or their team of doctors. Yeah. So I can imagine, you know, as you're breaking the news, you have this beautiful, calm presence and we can, you know, come to how you've developed that in a minute. Mm -hmm. Uh, But I can see that here you are being calm. You have this huge um, knowledge bank to be drawing on and you've got somebody who's in a very different energy, um, probably panic, overwhelm, and we can't think clearly and make a decision when we're in overwhelm. So how do you help the person like you know shift in in that moment well I think it's one how you present the information Mm -hmm. and I think that our behavior impacts our environment that's for everybody so if I'm and there are doctors that are fearful when they give a diagnosis of of cancer to their patient they Mm. themselves are fearful and are saying we got to do this right away and this that and the other Mm. Um, and I think that that's not really the right approach, but when I'm calm, then the patient can be calm. And if they're still, um, if I feel that they have a lot of heightened energy, then mm-hmm. I do, um, I know this sounds weird, but I will do a breathing space exercise with them where I'll help them to uh, create the space for them and hold the space for them through breath work, mm-hmm. which means I, I'd take them through a body scan. I might even put them on the exam table and help them to lay down and take some slow, deep breaths and take them through a a short body scan of maybe three minutes. Mm -hmm. And then we'll go back to talking about the cancer. And sometimes what they need to hear is that we can take care. It doesn't matter what's happening. This is a treatable thing. So even though I spend an hour with them, they may not hear everything that um, I say, Mm. but at the end, I want them, I say, if you don't remember one thing that I tell you today, I want you to walk out of here knowing that this is a this is something that is treatable and you have options and you have choices. So a person may not have a choice in actually having the diagnosis of cancer, but they do have the choice in how they choose to respond to mm. addressing that challenge. Yeah. That's so empowering to, you know, sometimes in any kind of work environment, you might have to give somebody some bad news or what, mm. you know, is perceivably bad news. Maybe you need to, you know, let somebody go. They're not able to keep their job. But if you can give a sense of, um, you know, solution focus and there are options and there are choices, giving people a sense of autonomy really calms down that threat response in the brain. So Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. So it's the sense that you walk out with rather than uh, the information <laughs> that makes the biggest difference, doesn't it? And, and I tell them that I'm never going to give, I said, this is the one time you can make a choice and the options are all equal. You can make a bad choice mm-hmm. because every option I give them is equal in survival. Right. So they're not, they're, it's, it's just a matter of choosing what they, what's best for them. And they have, I give them that time and that space to make those choices for themselves along with maybe their partner and their other family members and so forth, they have time to consider things as mm-hmm. opposed to reacting and making a fear-based decision instead of an informed decision. Mm-hmm. So I think that's really important. Oh, absolutely. And I mentioned that I wanted to come back to more of your calm presence. Um, so tell me, how, what is different between your early days of, of surgery? Like, did you, always, did you get <laughs> this at the beginning? Did you get this when you were training as a, as a doctor? No, no. Um, it, so I have 
practiced yoga off and on for years. And I used to practice it more from just the physical perspective, um, a very Western approach to it, you know, flexible and strong and so forth. I'd look at myself in the mirror, the poses had to be perfect. Um, and so <laughs> I, it's funny because I think back to that and I'm like, oh, who was that person? Um, but um, the pose. <laughs> yes. But then I, when I moved to Australia, I had a new yoga teacher and he would dribble in some of the philosophy in terms of the other limbs of yoga that really resonated with me. And I mm -hmm. noticed that I was calmer. Mm -hmm. um, just in general, I had, I was calm. My mind was calm. And yes, I was becoming flexible and strong and so forth, you know, which are side effects of yoga practice. But I was with a patient one day and I gave her the diagnosis of, of breast cancer and she was crying. And I said, and it was a, she had a very early breast cancer. So it was very treatable and curable. And I asked her, I said, well, why, what's wrong? Why are you crying? I said, what are you afraid of? And she said, well, I'm afraid of dying. And I, and I thought to myself, well, that's really strange to be afraid. Of. <laughs> I had this kind of aha moment. Mm -hmm. I didn't say it out loud, but in my mind, I'm thinking that's weird to, why would we be afraid of dying when we are going to? Yeah. So in other words, death is inevitable. We are spiritual beings having a physical experience. So we're not going to stay. We're always going to change. Our minds and our body are evolving every day, whether we're aware of it or not. We're not going to be here forever. You may live 90 years, 100 years. Um, there's scientists now that say that we have the capacity, depending on our genetics and our lifestyles in the future, that we might live to be well over 100, no more than 150 that might happen in our, in our human, human history, but we're not going to be here forever. So to fear something and to live a life of worry about something that's inevitable as opposed to being present and just enjoying the journey for whatever time we have robs us of really having true joy because we aren't living in our truth and reality. So I felt like, oh man, you know, Yes, I'm going to remove her cancer, but she's going to continue to have fear that her cancer is going to come back. She's going to have fear of um, a lot of different things that may never, ever happen. So a lot of people worry in life about things that never, ever happen. And that's not a mindset that you want to rest in or be in yeah. for, you, for the rest of your life. So I thought, well, it's not enough for me to cut out cancer. It's not enough for me just to remove their cancer. I want to address the quality of their life, but I also want to address the quality of their mind, a mindset that if uh, a mindset that will support their well-being and their survival and full recovery, not just physical recovery, but mental recovery as well. That conversation was a turning point for me because I just realized it wasn't enough to just cut a cancer out with and leaving a person in a mindset that may be didn't, doesn't support their health in the first place yeah, and isn't going to support their full recovery, their mental recovery, as well as the physical recovery. Yeah. So what did you do differently after that day or when you went home that day? What happened? Uh -huh. After that day, I, they had been trying to get me to um, be a yoga instructor. And it's the mind, it was the mindfulness aspects of yoga that um, really kept me on my mat this time around. So I decided to do yoga teacher training so that I can incorporate the principles of yoga. 
somehow in my surgical practice, but I didn't know how that was going to work. And I didn't know how I was going to do that without um, being embarrassed in a way because surgeons are viewed a certain way. Yeah. I didn't know how my patients were going to take that on. And I didn't know how my colleagues were going to feel about it. And yeah. then I did the yoga teacher training kind of secretly <laughs> <laughs> for a while until I had to teach, like to get certified, you have to actually do practice teaching. So then some of the nurses joined my classes and things. And then I just owned it. And I just started teaching yoga in the community, not necessarily to patients, but just in general, in the community at the yoga studio, I was hired. Um, to do that. So then patients started coming and people from the community and my coworkers and, um, and then the other surgeons, they teased me initially, but then they would come to me for advice about their back or <laughs> different things. Yeah. And uh, yeah, I think it helped me. It de definitely made me have a different perspective about my surgical practice and how I do breast reconstruction okay. and the muscle groups and, and just how I approach surgery. In, in terms of function, because lots of people survive their cancers now, we have excellent treatment. So our survival rates are quite high, mm -hmm. but I can't say that the quality of life after treatment um, for all patients are is optimal. So I think we have a lot of work to do in healthcare in terms of increasing or improving quality of life for patients after they complete treatment, because sometimes they have ongoing side effects from treatment. Mm -hmm. So it's just, um, yeah, so I incorporated my yoga practice in my, into my surgical practice, especially the breath work, which is pranayama breathing techniques. I've also, but I've also um, have dedicated classes, yoga classes for uh, cancer patients. So I teach a Thursday night class. Well, COVID happened. Mm -hmm. So I started teaching virtually. And even though we now can go back into studios and things like that, this one particular class, which is a restorative yoga class, which incorporates a little bit of restorative, but also yin yoga, which is holding the poses for a little bit longer for a few minutes, mm -hmm. as well as yoga nidra, which is sleep yoga. It helps people to slow down and just to relax their mind so that they can have quality sleep. Mm -hmm. And so it emphasizes the importance of sleep. Yes, yeah, just evolved. <laughs> <laughs> That's amazing. And tell us about where in Queensland you are and and where and I guess you have remote clients which which can, you can reach on yes yeah, so I I when I moved to Australia I was in Gladstone initially which is in central Queensland and then I was there for five years and now I'm currently um, practicing in Harvey Bay which is uh, the Fraser Coast mm -hmm. so it's right outside of um, Fraser Island which is the largest sand island in the world Lovely. Uh, so it's a beautiful place to live but I still have patients that come from central Queensland to Harvey Bay um, I've had a few patients come from out of state and in terms of teaching yoga that because I teach the class virtually basically we do it through zoom and um, it's just a one-hour class to help people slow down at the end of their day mm -hmm. and to kind of end their week on a nice gentle um, mindset and to help yeah. uh, take people into a state of deep relaxation which is perfect to do from home yeah. and I like doing it from home as well because it allows people to take their practice into their home space and they can create their environment so when they walk into their environment that in and of itself can create calm so you don't have to be in a studio or in a special 
environment, you can take that practice into your own home and, and do it every day. So I try to teach in a way where people can take some of it and use it every day. They don't have to rely on me yeah. to practice. Yeah, that's powerful. Again, you're empowering people. Yes, yes, yeah. empowering people. Yeah, beautiful. So can people join your Zoom from anywhere? Is that open to people beyond your patients? Is that something that yeah, we should? Yeah, I do have others in the, in the, that do it um, that aren't um, pa- my patients. Um, they're just people in the community that just like the class. So again, I originally started teaching and just taught people in the community, men, women, even yeah. some children would come to, you know, children of the, you know, their mothers came to my class. So yoga is beneficial to anyone of any age, gender, yeah. anyone can do it. The poses are, can all be modified, but I am mindful of the fact that when you're doing a, a yoga class virtually, I can't make adjustments. Yeah. I can't see, I don't see what you're doing, which is powerful in, in a way because people aren't conscious of or, or self-aware in terms of self-conscious, I should say, of um, what they look like in a pose where sometimes when you're new to yoga and you're in a yoga studio, you're you know, people are self-conscious about what they're wearing. They're self-conscious about if they're doing it good enough. All of this doubt, self-doubt and judgment comes into it and looking at other people doing cool poses when that's not, I say, if you're looking around, you're not keeping your yoga practice on your own mat. It's a very personal practice. Yeah. Um, it's just supporting your body and honoring what your body can do in that moment because our bodies are amazing. It doesn't matter what you feel about your body or how you feel, maybe your body's let you down, your body is everybody's body is an incredible credible creation and it saddens me when people judge themselves so harshly and their bodies that have carried them through lots of experiences in this life so i think the the powerful thing is when you're practicing from home you're at home i can't see what you're doing and nobody else can see what you're doing if you want to lay on your mat the whole class and that's how you get your relaxation i wouldn't know that you're doing that if in because everybody's muted you know, if you go go to the toilet, <laughs> I don't know that either. If the dog is barking, I don't know that either. Yeah. But in terms of other people joining, I just need to know, I used to have an um, online punch pass and people can usually join through that. But now we have kind of an email list and people who are interested in joining, they just, I send out the link on the email, the class is for free. So we don't, I don't charge for it. At least not right now, we don't charge for it. We're thinking of charging for it to make donations to um, Restore More, which is a nonprofit. Oh, cool. Tell us about that because, you know, we connected at B1G1. We're looking at how can we be using our businesses to make a bigger difference in the world through, Mm. you know, small acts of kindness, small giving moments. And uh, so tell us more about Restore More. So Restore More um, was a charity I started in 2018. And initially it was because um, I had patients that could not afford breast reconstruction in the private. They had no health fund and the waiting list in the public hospital. uh, Well, first of all, I should say not all public hospitals offer breast reconstruction and um, the waiting list in the public hospitals can be quite long in some states. And in the state of Queensland, we have the highest, um, for regional patients, we have the highest uh, mastectomy rate and a very low breast reconstruction rate. And that's actually in all of Australia um, compared to the UK and the US, the breast reconstruction rate is very low. 
So um, I started Restore More basically to raise money to help uh, get women access to breast reconstruction if they were from regional areas, since they were more likely to have a mastectomy and not be offered breast reconstruction. And if you don't get your breast reconstruction immediately or in a short time period, it's very hard to either be put on the waiting list or you may be waiting for several years without a breast, which can um, impact a woman's, you know, mental state in terms of how they feel about themselves and their bodies. So we started the nonprofit. Um, however, we still are providing, we are providing grants for breast reconstruction and we're start, starting to partner with plastic surgeons so that those plastic surgeons can apply for grants on behalf of their patients. But we're also um, educating patients about keeping their breasts because mm -hmm. the survival is the same. And I tried to, you know, people say, well, you don't need your breasts anymore and breasts aren't important. And that's true if you, you don't need them, you don't have to have breasts mm -hmm. um, to live a, a good life. And we don't have to be defined by our breasts um, either. However, if a person has a cancer on their leg or their arm, we don't say we can take it off, take the cancer off, or we can remove your leg or arm. We can also reconstruct your leg or arm and give you a prosthetic and you can even be a Paralympian. Oh, by the way, you have two arms or two legs, we'll take both of them off. But with our breasts, we, we do that. We say, well, just remove the breast. Matter of fact, remove both of them, cut them off. I don't need them, they're betraying me. We don't want people to make, the, we want, I want people to understand that their body didn't betray them and that it's okay to keep your breasts. It's, we would never offer that as an option if it wasn't safe and it offers the same survival. Most women don't know what it's like to have a breast missing. And sometimes after it's gone and the cancer's gone, they, they don't like it. And even when we can offer them breast reconstruction, sometimes they, they're not satisfied or happy with that either. Um, there can be chronic pain, there can be some dysfunction as well related to mastectomies and breast reconstruction. So our, we have another um, initiative called a woman's right to choose. Mm -hmm. And it's important to just educate them about their options, but also help them to come to their decision based off of evidence and information as opposed to making that decision out of fear, a fear of keeping their breasts, which isn't, a, again, a mindset. Mm -hmm. Even if we remove the breasts, um, if they're still fearful of the cancer coming back, again, that's not a good mindset to support their immune system or their physical well-being. So mm -hmm. we have two prongs to our, uh, to restore more. One is an education to educate women that they do have options and that in most circumstances, there are so many ways to preserve the breast and the survival is gonna be the same. Or if a woman has to have a mastectomy or chooses to have a mastectomy, then breast reconstruction should be discussed with the patient. It should be their decision. Not everybody wants reconstruction and it's not wrong to have a mastectomy or to choose a mastectomy, but it really is the woman's choice because they live with the consequences of those decisions. That was something that really stood out to me in your book. Like while it's your story and there's so much of your learning journey, the education in here, I found that I just was wishing that everybody could experience you as a doctor. <laughs> because Well, actually, that's why I wrote the book. Yeah. Um, so that I could share it with other physicians. Yeah. Um, so the book was originally written to help patients at the end of their treatment so that they can kind of look at their breast cancer uh, as an experience because mm -hmm. all of us as human beings will 
experience some type of physical or mental challenges. Mm -hmm. um, but maybe we won't experience breast cancer, but you might, you will experience some type of illness. It could be something as simple as the flu, diabetes or something. And we, those are experiences that don't have to define the rest of your life. So for breast cancer patients, it's an experience and it's a way for them to, to have a little bit of a wake up call because it's like a lot of us go through life not thinking about our mortality. Mm -hmm. We think about aging and how we can dye our hair. We can, you know, <laughs> not have wrinkles and that sort of thing. But it's like, how do you want to live whatever time you have left? If you have a few years left, if you have 40 years left, how do you want to live in the moment for whatever time you have left? And with breast cancer patients, they have the gift of having an opportunity to reevaluate the relationships, reevaluate their purpose, um, their careers, and things like that. So I think it could potentially, depending on perspective, can be actually a gift and a wake up to say, yes. hey, you know, I, I've survived this, I've completed my treatments, and how am I going to move forward with joy and in my truth and in reality and, and still live a full life? Because mm. we're all going to have challenges. And, and I think if you overcome a challenge like that, your next challenge will probably be a piece of cake. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. So what you were sharing there about, you know, seeing the gift and opportunity in, uh, well, you said seeing the gift in it, which is the sage perspective in the positive intelligence, which you've had, you know, a bit of a look at, I think. When we can see things as a gift and opportunity, it takes the, the stress and the anxiety out of the challenge. So I noticed in the book, you've got a few mindfulness exercises and I think it would be great to share one of those for people who might be listening to this and have just had some kind of, uh, you know, bad news. Something's interrupted there every day, whether it's a diagnosis or something that is completely frustrating. Uh, so I see you've got a mindfulness exercise called finding trust, which is beautiful, and also the candle gazing. So I think either one of these we could do in a few moments. So what would you like to share with us? Just take us through one of those exercises. Um, the, the candle gazing, I think, is really quite good because you can just dim, you, you can dim the lights in a room or you don't have to, but you just light a candle with one wick doesn't have to be a special scent or anything like that and you just sit and you just look at the flame i mean so it's not anything um difficult to do most people have candles uh and you just light the candle and you look at the flame and just notice maybe you can notice so i have actually a candle right here yeah i have actually two um two wicks in my candle so i can you just like look at it, take a deep breath in, inhaling in, exhaling out. And just kind of see what you notice in the candle itself in terms of using your senses, your, your sense of sight, which is the most obvious. You can look at the flame and see the different shapes as it dances. You can see the white, maybe even a cream color 
in the very top part of the flame as it descends into a blue or a violet. And then in between that blue and the white, you can see an area that's black. In the very top part of the wick, you can see little spots of orange. And below the actual flame, you can see as the wax is melting, it kind of glistens and you can see the reflection of the flame dancing off the reflection of the wax. And the wax as it melts almost looks still like the water in a lake. Maybe as you inhale in on your next breath, see if you can appreciate the smell of the candle. The next inhalation, inhaling all the way, filling the lungs with the scent. Exhaling out through the mouth. Now seeing if you can appreciate maybe the sense of touch, maybe you can feel the warmth of the candle. Depending on how close it is to you, maybe you're looking down over the candle and you can feel the warmth coming up onto your cheeks, your forehead. Maybe you're even holding the candle in your lap as I am and I can feel the warmth of the candle. It's not too hot, but I can feel it on my fingers. Maybe appreciating how we feel with warmth versus a cool sensation. How does warmth make us feel? Does it make us feel safe? Or maybe it may feel, make us feel uncomfortable without judging it. Just being curious about the sensations that arise within. And just taking a moment while you're watching those flames dance. And just softening your ear, your inner ear for sound. Noticing the sounds in the room that you're in. And drawing your hearing a little bit closer. Maybe you, you can even hear the flame itself. Sometimes a fire can spit a little bit. You can hear a little kick from the wick. Or if there's a slight breeze in your room, a, a ceiling fan or a window that's open and there's a breeze that comes through, it hits the flame and you can hear it. Taking a deep breath in, holding the breath, exhaling out. 
closing your eyes down. And just appreciating how the mind feels. Noticing any thoughts that you may have without judgment. Noticing how the body feels. And then opening your eyes. And that's candle gazing. <laughs> well, that's beautiful. And I was glad that I had a candle within reach that I could just uh, pop up here in front of me. It's uh, a beautiful way of just quietening the mind, isn't it? Which is, you know, building our self-command muscles or our, um, you know, self-regulation. Yeah, I think a lot of people struggle with meditation because they think meditation, you have to sit in a strange seated pose that's uncomfortable. Mm -hmm. um, mm -hmm. It may not be accessible for all people, but meditation can take many forms, but meditation is to quiet the mind, to focus mm -hmm. the mind and to rest the mind. Yes. And so people can access that in so many different ways and candle gazing, you can meditate with your eyes open. So you can um, just look at a candle and gaze at it and just mm. relax the mind focusing on something. So we usually, the breath is something that we focus on because it's mm -hmm. accessible and it's always with us, yes. but you can just go outside your house and take a walk in your neighborhood. And one of the moving meditation I like to do is I like to over like 10 seconds, I like to notice things. How many things do I notice in my environment over those 10 seconds? Yeah. So it's a little mind game that I play with myself. So that's just a moving meditation. So there's lots of different things that you can do mm. to focus the mind and to, to start to re relax your mind because our minds are like little monkeys. They just swing from thought to thought. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I've certainly grown an appreciation for the trees along uh, this beautiful pathway near home. And every single tree is different and, and some of them, you know, Linda and I would just stand there and just be touching the tree or the leaves and just appreciating it in a way that I never had time or never made time for before. And we can carry around, you know, all these worries about past or future, but this just brings us into the moment and it is relaxing, but it also gives us clarity to, to see answers to things that we might've been troubled about. Yeah, so we've got absolutely. to we've got to let it go before we can actually have the solutions, don't we? Yeah, yeah, that's which beautiful. Is, which is, I think, why also sleep is so important because our minds do need to rest. Mm -hmm. And so I think people make the assumption that when you're sleeping at night, you're resting, but your body lays down and it rests. Mm -hmm. But it doesn't mean that your mind is actually resting. You can your mind may be still um, problem solving, creating, and innovating. Yep. dreaming and some people wake up the next morning feeling exhausted because their mind never shut down yeah and it's really important to work on tools so some people say oh when I meditate I fall asleep I'm like that's great good <laughs> <laughs> you know it's a great way to enter into sleep <laughs> <clears throat> that's right yeah and it's um and if you fall asleep when you're meditating and you didn't want to go to sleep it's just your body telling you yeah you needed to go to yeah, sleep yeah you need to rest yeah Mm. Well, that's beautiful um thank you so much amelia this is the first podcast i've done with such uh quiet moments so i might do a little introduction um announcing that because i think whether you're 
out running or um, where do you listen to podcasts? In the car, all kinds of places. Um, we can take a moment to even think that through and imagine that you're sitting with a candle, but come back to this and, and listen again with your candle in front of you. That's, it's such a beautiful gift. Thank you, Amelia. And I feel like we could keep talking. We could unpack more about sleep and uh, um, all kinds of subjects. But, but tell us before you go, can you think of someone you've connected with in your journey, maybe a surprise meeting, a stranger who's had an impact in your life? Yeah, you. <laughs> <laughs> um, oh, um, I could. Yeah, I, I can. It's it actually written in my book. I did a Vipassana meditation 10 day silence. Um, it's not really a retreat. It's a, it's a meditation course for 10 days to learn Vipassana meditation. But I thought I was going to a, a retreat um, that I could read and journal. And it's really a, um, 10 days of meditation and silence. And I, what I learned about myself was how judgmental I could be because I, my mind created stories about everybody that was there because we couldn't look at each other. We weren't supposed to gesture or communicate with each other in any way over the 10 days. And I had created the story around a woman who's from Germany. And I don't think I knew, she, I didn't know she was from Germany but I thought she didn't like me. Mm -hmm. And I, and so I didn't like her because I, <laughs> because I didn't think she liked me. So it was like this whole little thing that was going on for 10 days. And then at the end of the retreat, we, at the end of the course, we were sitting down at breakfast and she came and sat down next to me. And she said, I just think you're the most interesting person. And I've been wanting to come and talk to you for the whole 10 days. And I'm thinking to myself, what? I said, but you don't like me. And I didn't say that out loud, but I'm thinking to myself, she doesn't even like me and I don't like her. And I thought like I was a complete lunatic. Like <laughs> I thought I was crazy. And she was, you know, a backpacker. She had come from Germany and she and her boyfriend were doing the meditation retreat amongst other things through Australia. We just had the most interesting conversation and she was lovely. And it just taught me about you know, judging a book by its cover and the stories that our mind create about people, but not just about what we think of them, but what we think they think of us. Yeah. And so that was a, that was a great lesson. Yeah. Um, and it was very impactful. So I think it's, yeah, it, it taught me that I've always considered myself to be fairly non-judgmental and open-minded and inclusive. Mm -hmm. But when your mind is creating stories about people that you see and that you don't really know, you don't take the time to connect with. Um, I think, you know, I think that's an important lesson to, you may miss out on connecting with somebody who may really end up being a, a good long lifelong friend. If you just don't take the time to get to know people and open your mind. Yeah. So that was a, a stranger that made a significant impact on me and woke me up to my own judgment of others and what my mind is capable of doing. Yeah, that's powerful. Thank you for sharing because we, we so easily make assumptions and hmm. if they're not challenged and you had like 10 days of, <laughs> of not having the opportunity to resolve that. I'm so glad that you did because that's really powerful. And Well, I resolved it. She had nothing to resolve. <laughs> she <laughs> yeah, didn't she, have any problems. She spent the, the week that thinking <laughs> that she couldn't wait to meet you. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> oh, that's so beautiful. Uh, I really appreciate you. <laughs> 
because it's so honest and we do make assumptions like that and we miss out on well our, our minds are we are built to survive and yeah. so we do judge our environment and we judge situations unconsciously because that's just how we're built yeah. um but we have to also have a self-awareness about are we really in danger or are is this person really that way yes. and have some self-awareness about the capability of our mind of creating stories and filling in the blanks so to speak um and i started wondering well how many other times have i done that in the past where i've created stories around people or around situations that just weren't truthful that's not reality yeah, yeah. we create these false realities yeah yes yeah, so great to be aware. And we could just do another whole conversation about self-awareness. Uh, so, <laughs> but let us wrap up and we'll put links for people to connect with you and, uh, and to get a copy of your book, which is just beautiful. Uh, so is there anything that you would like to say to feel complete on this conversation, Amelia? I just want people to um, live their life as fully and fearlessly as possible because we only get this life, regardless of your spiritual beliefs, we only get this life in this body one time and just be as present as possible because the past, whatever happened in it is the past and it's no longer reality. So the only thing that's real is what's happening right now in the present moment. So live, live joyfully and live fearlessly. That's so beautiful. Thank you so much for your time with us today, Amelia. Thank you. Namaste. Thank you, my friends, for listening. I am so delighted that I was able to have that time with Amelia. And, of course, we could have so much more conversation. Uh, so in the meantime, let me know if you want to hear more from Amelia. And if you want to go online, get her book. So it's called Live Fearlessly, Liberating Your Life After Breast Cancer. And so it is amazing whether you or someone in your world has experienced breast cancer or any kind of cancer and has that fear of cancer returning. Um, there is just so much gold in this book. I've really appreciated it. You know, even the, the aspects of comparison and judgment and, and just not knowing how to connect with and support people who are going through challenges. So it's just such a beautiful, credible book that can help so many people. So uh, many thanks again to Amelia and yeah you can find her online I will put links in the show notes and let's continue to explore how can we do our best thinking supporting ourselves and others if you want to check out kerryphipps.com we have more podcasts we have coaching we have the positive intelligence coaching program which is incredibly profound and if you enjoyed that moment with the candle uh, you'll, and the conversation about being mindful as you're walking, meditating with trees or with your breath, uh, all kinds of things. We explore all of those uh, little practical moments where we can still our mind. So powerful stuff there. Let us do our best thinking and best connecting. So until next time, all the very best. And I look forward to connecting with you again soon. <music>